But anyways, there's uh, more information. And I'm personally excited uh, for us to be doing this. And also, I'm thrilled uh, as we've been in this uh, current sermon series in the book of Genesis, where over a a number of weeks, number of months, where we have been going through Genesis, uh, the first book of the Bible, chapter by chapter in certain sections, and then uh, moving on to other chapters. And what we notice in the book of Genesis is that it's full of promises. In fact, you look behind me, these are all the different mountains that we have put together, and on there are passages from Genesis, and on there are the promises of God. And we live in a world of promises, don't we? Promises kept or promises broken. Each of us invariably experiences something like that in our lives. I was talking to a woman recently where her fiancé broke off the engagement, broke off the ensuing wedding date, and broke his promise to marry her. And it was heart-wrenching for her. And some of, us has, some of us have experienced that kind of emotion when it comes to a promise that's broken. Um, we're in an election year, as I joked during the announcements, and we're hearing all these promises, right, on these debates or at the, at the caucus, perhaps, that you went to. All these promises about immigration or the economy or what have you. And, and whoever becomes president will not be able to fulfill every single promise. It's just the way it goes. But when we turn to the book of Genesis, we see something different. We see a God who keeps his promises. And we've asked the question, why is that? And we have this wristband, and we actually have a few left in the lobby if you want to grab one. And the reason why God fulfills his promises is because he said he would. And we see him make the promise to Noah, and he fulfills that promise. And then we see God make a promise to Abraham and Sarah where he comes to them and he says, I'm going to give you a son. And your family is going to be a blessing to all the nations. And that promise is fulfilled this morning as we look at the story of Joseph, the great-grandson of Abraham, that through Joseph, the line of the family of Abraham is a blessing to all the nations. So if you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 45. We're going to spend some time in 45, verses 1 through 8, and then we're also going to look at the last chapter of Genesis, uh, chapter 50. Let's take a look at chapter 45. Let me pray for us as we begin together. Father God, we give thanks for this morning, and Lord, I um, stand here as as an honor to uh, share and and teach your word. And Holy Spirit, I I pray that you would speak through me, um, that you would anoint this message, and that you would speak to our congregation for those here individually, uh, that you'd speak to them, speak to our church as a collective body as well. And God, I just pray that your presence, your power, your grace, your spirit would be so experienced this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said? Amen. Well, before before I jump into verses 1 through 4, and if you have teaching notes, you want to follow along, it's in your program. But I need to set the table and kind of give a, a summary of chapters 42 through 44. And the story about Joseph, if you're gone the last couple weeks, I invite you to listen online. But, but Joseph uh, was betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery. And then, long story short, uh, Joseph uh, eventually ends up in prison. And in prison, he meets the cupbearer of Pharaoh. And the cupbearer is so impressed with, with Joseph and his ability to interpret dreams and his character and his work ethic that when the cupbearer is released and Joseph is still in prison, the cupbearer tells Pharaoh when Pharaoh has a couple of dreams and nobody in his court can interpret, the cupbearer says, there's this guy in prison named Joseph that I met and he can interpret dreams. He has a special ability 
and he has a great character. So Pharaoh sends for him at once. And then Joseph comes and correctly interprets those two dreams. One dream is about that there's going to be an abundance in Egypt, and then next that there's going to be a famine. And uh, after a, a certain amount of time and some years, uh, Pharaoh elevates, actually promotes, Joseph in his government, where, where Joseph actually becomes sort of the second person in charge, the vice president of the land of Egypt, which is unbelievable, staggering for a slave and a, a, a former prison inmate to actually get that high in the government. And then in uh, chapters 42 through 44, it's, there's the famine in the land, just as Joseph had interpreted that dream. And Joseph's brothers, his 11 brothers, come to Egypt looking for food. They need food. They need, they need grain. So they come to Egypt. They come to Pharaoh's court. And they come face to face with their brother, Joseph. They don't recognize him because he's changed his name to an Egyptian name. He has an Egyptian family, an Egyptian wife. They don't recognize him, but Joseph recognizes them. And Joseph wants to make a change in his life. He wants to be reunited with his family. But what he does in chapters 42 through 44, he goes about it sort of detached, sort of as, as, as putting the distance between him and his brothers and not revealing who he is and, and in some way exacting revenge as well. And he's not quite sure what to do, but finally he can't take it any longer. To make change in his life, Joseph realizes that he is going to have to personally engage with his brothers and reveal himself. And we see that exactly in chapter 45, verse 1. I'm going to be re- reading from the New Living Translation, the NLT. And uh, feel free to follow along in your Bible or your Bible app or the slides that are behind me. Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, Out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. Then he broke down and wept. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians could hear him, and word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. I am Joseph, he says to his brothers. Is my father still alive? And just sort of, if you want to make a note of this, next to that phrase, is my father still alive? It was sort of a Hebrew idiom of saying, is everything okay with the family? Um, he's not asking, is, is dad physically alive? He's saying, is everything okay with the family? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come co- closer, he said to them. So they came closer. And he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold in slavery in Egypt. Let's stop right there. So we see with Joseph is that for him to make change in his life, uh, he's going to have to deal with his past. And in doing so, he's going to have to personally engage with this. And there's a few takeaways that we, that we receive from the story of Joseph. And the first one is this, is that starting over comes not from detaching from your past, but through a risky engagement of it. And so often when we deal with our past, we think that we can kind of keep it at a distance or perhaps be detached like Joseph and bring about change in our life. And it doesn't happen. I was talking to a guy recently. He said, Craig, I want to make a fresh change in my life. I want, to, I want to have a new start in my marriage. I want a new start in my career. I want to have a new start in my life. And, and yet, as he shared, he talked about this, this really uh, hard event, this devastating event that happened in the past through some relationships. And I told him, I said, you're not going to have real change in your life until you really personally engage with that thing from the past. And he grimaced. 
He said, I don't, I don't really want to do that. It's going to be too painful. It's going to be too risky. It's going to be too uncomfortable. And I said, that's the reason why most people don't make changes. Because change always involves discomfort. Change involves dissonance. And that's exactly what Joseph experiences, doesn't he? He experiences that discomfort. Because when you become personally engaged with something in the past, you have no idea how your emotions are going to react. Verse 2, he wept loudly. In your teaching notes, underline that phrase, or in your Bible, underline that phrase. He wept loudly. It's much more than just a loud cry. The actual Hebrew word, if you want to write this down, the key word, it's spelled Q-O-W-L. Great Scrabble word, especially for a, a triple word score. Q-O-W-L. It's pronounced coal. And it means a wailing. It's the sort of sound, actually, if you, if you trace, trace the etymology of this word, it actually is the, the sound that a, a mother sheep would make if her baby lamb was taken away. It's loud. That's why the, you know, it says that everybody heard Joseph crying. It's a risk to do that, but he, he needs to go through that if he wants to make that change in his life, if he wants to be reconnected with his family, this family that he misses so greatly is that he's going to have to personally engage with this event. He wept loudly. Starting over comes not from detaching from our past, but through a risky engagement of it. Look at uh, verse 4. I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold in slavery into Egypt. He doesn't gloss over, and he's he's not saying it, I believe. He's not saying it as a way to shame them or guilt them. I think he's He's fully confronting what happened. I think he is, he is uh, looking at truthfully. He's not glossing over. He's not justifying it. He's not making conditions on it. He's not saying it sort of in a, in a, sort of a Minnesota nice vernacular. You know, he cuts right to the chase. This is exactly what happened. This is what happened to me. It's important that when we engage in the past is that we're truthful so a couple of questions I want to ask you in this first takeaway. What is it about your past that you need to address before you make anew, before you start over? Because you can move to Maui, you can have a body that receives a thousand likes in, in, a, in a, a social network or something, but, but really for change to occur in your life is that you have to deal with your past. You can move, you can do a lot of different things, but until you deal with your past... Um, change isn't really going to occur. What do you need to address? As Shakespeare once wrote, our past is prologue. He wrote that in the play, The Tempest. Our past is prologue. And for us, for you and I to write a better story of our lives, for you and I to be a better version of ourselves, sometimes we need to return to the past and address it. I mean, maybe it's a former friend. Maybe it's an ex. Maybe it's a, a former employer. Maybe it's a former church that you really need to personally engage and address. Will you engage with your past for the sake of change? And if you do, will you address, address it truthfully? Just like Joseph. I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold in slavery into Egypt. Can you imagine the pain of saying that for him and his brothers? Just the pain of that. It's painful, it's, it's hard, it's ugly. But the only way that change can occur for us is if we go through it, if we go through some of the difficulties in our, in our lives. 
Well, in the next, uh, next point, that, or next takeaway that I want to talk about um, before I get to that is in Andrew Lloyd Webber's uh, Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, uh, the narrator in the, in, the, in the musical encourages the imprisoned uh, Joseph not to despair because this is what he says, I've read the book and you come out on top. The problem is Joseph doesn't know that. And we don't either. We don't know the end of the story for our lives, do we? As, the, as our story is being written, as the chapters are being written in our lives, we have no idea what's at the end. None of us knows what it's going to look like in the end. And too often we, we feel like we're languishing in the doldrums of life and that we're waiting for God to bring our talents or our, our um, talents or our uh, gifts to fruition. And yet at the same time, God seems to be asleep or perhaps distracted at the wheel. And we're wondering when he's going to bring about some events in our lives. And I'm sure Joseph was thinking that too, because it took many, many, many years before this reunion with his brothers. Many years. And Joseph had been in the midst of a long process, as we have seen over that past couple weeks, a long journey. But finally, he's able to see the end of the journey, the end of his alienation from his family, and also God's promise how his line, this family line, is going to be a blessing to the nations. Let's pick it up in verse 5. This is what Joseph says. Look at these words. But don't be upset, and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God. Now, you're going to notice in his language here, uh, several times, Joseph points back at God. He doesn't say Pharaoh. He doesn't say me. He says God. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years, and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. That's a key, for, a key word in this, many survivors. There's probably millions of lives that Joseph saved as a result of being in the Egyptian government, by the way. That's what, that's what God meant by to Abraham, that your family will be a blessing to the nations. It's through this right here. God fulfills that promise through Joseph and what he does during the famine. God has sent me ahead of you uh, to keep you and your families alive and preserve many survivors. So it's God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of Egypt. So that you fill in the blank, the takeaway that we have, the second one, is that God works within the journey of our lives, whether good or bad. And that's the story of Joseph. God works within the journey of our lives, whether good or bad. It reminds me of a story I came across recently about a missionary who had given many of her uh, adult years to serving a certain tribe in Africa. And it, kind of, it came to her last day. She was retiring, and she was going to return back to America. And as she spent time with this Af- African tribe uh, in all these years, she developed a close bond with, with this village. So that last day with this African tribe was a very poignant, a very emotional goodbye and farewell. And many of the villagers brought gifts to her, uh, not much monetary value to them, but very thoughtful. But then she saw one of the gifts was the shell. And it was a shell that she knew that took a journey of several weeks to go find and bring back. And she asked the guy who gave the shell to her, why did you do this? This took several weeks of a journey on foot to bring back this shell. And that guy said, the, the guy said this, 
is that uh, the journey is part of a gift. The journey is part of a gift. And so often in our lives, that's true too, is that God works within the journey of our lives, but sometimes we want to skip those middle chapters and get to the end of the book, simply saying, God, we want, I want to know what happens at the end. But it's being patient in the midst of the journey. And that's the story of Joseph, is that God's sovereignty and his blessing can be found in the midst of the journey. Even in the midst of heinous crimes, even in the midst of his brothers doing terrible things, that God's sovereignty and blessing is still found within that. It's not like when evil happens or bad things happen that God all of a sudden kind of steps away from that or goes away from that. Even within the good and the bad, God's sovereignty and his work can happen. God's, God's work can happen. The depths of God's sovereignty are not demonstrated by the suppression of our free will or free choices. God's sovereignty is revealed in his power and his knowledge. That's important for us. Let's turn to chapter 50, verse 20. This is a well-known phrase um, in the story of Joseph. Chapter 50, verse 20. And he's talking to his brothers um, after their father had died. And he says this, You intended to harm me, but God intended for good. In other words, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Even in the midst of evil, even in the midst of bad things, God still brings it about. God still makes it happen. God still brings things together. It's sort of an echo of Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where Paul writes this, All things work together for good for God's people. And for Joseph, it's all things, including all the evil done to, to, to him by his brothers, including uh, the evil things hap- that happened to his uh, father Jacob. These are things that God meant together for the good. And God did not sit idly by. He wasn't distracted. He wasn't asleep at the wheel. God was working in the midst of the journey of Joseph, and God works in the midst of the journey of our lives too. And maybe you're here this morning, and you're in the midst of some stuff, and perhaps some bad things have happened to you, committed to, to, uh, towards you. Know that God is sovereign, that God is working in the midst of your journey. And for you to persevere, perhaps to endure, and to know that God's promises are true and that he'll fulfill his promises to you. What Joseph's brothers meant for evil, God also meant for good. The brothers selling Joseph into slavery was God's way of sending for salvation. Let me say that one more time. The brothers selling Joseph into slavery was God's sending for salvation. And I'm talking about saving lives, rescuing millions of lives of people during this famine. God uses that for good. I think sometimes we, we experience that. We experience pain and we experience bad things in our lives and we really wonder God's purposes. We ask the question, why, God? Why is this occurring in my life right now? Why am I going through this, this, this painful event, this, this, this bad thing that's happened in the midst of the journey of my life, in the midst of the, of, the, of the writing of the story of my life, why has this occurred? And that was a question I was asking God as a freshman in college when my best friend committed suicide. And it was a devastating event. And I was asking the question, why God? Why now? But then several years after that, I looked back on that event. And, and we were sad. We lost a really good friend. 
But that event God used in my life to propel me in a way that perhaps nothing else would have. Not saying that suicide had to happen for me to change my life, but it did something for me. It really, it really spoke to me that I had one life, one life to live. I wanted to make it count. At that time, I was struggling in college. I wasn't taking my studies seriously. And that propelled me to really want to make a difference with my life, to study, uh, to find a really good job, to invest in the lives of people, because life is precious. And I also learned later, too, that the, the death of my best friend caused his mom to join a church. And this is a family that never attended a church. Christmas or Easter, they never came to a church. But it caused his mom to join a church, become a member, receive Jesus Christ into her life as her Lord and Savior, and join the choir. And I remember talking to her some years after the suicide, and, and she, as we talked about the loss, we were sad. At the same time, she had this big smile on her face of what God was doing in her life and how she was serving those in need in her community as well. So sometimes in the midst of our journey, God can work out the good. What's meant for evil, God meant for good. Well, let's take a look at chapter 50. I want to sort of summarize verses 14 through 21 because this is when um, Jacob had died and the brothers were, were pretty worried because they thought, okay, Joseph said all those nice things back in chapter 45, but now that dad's dead, he's going to get us. He's going to come after us because dad's no, no longer around to keep us safe. And so just to summarize verses 14 through 16, they just say to him, they say, you know, we're so sorry. In fact, dad, in his will, I'm par- kind of throwing my own commentary in there. In his will, he said to you, uh, forgive your brothers for what they did to you. And, and uh, forgive them for their sins. And we pick it up here in uh, the latter part of verse 17. When Joseph received this message, he broke down and wept. I think he wept for a number of reasons, but his brothers didn't believe him. And I think he wept because he loved them, and, and, and there was a new change, and it wasn't happening yet because his brothers didn't believe what he said earlier. And he wept, and his brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we are your slaves, they said. They said. But Joseph replied, Do, don't be afraid of me. And in the actual original Hebrew, it actually means figuratively, get up. Get up off the ground. Don't be bowing down before me. He says this, Am I God that I could punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continually take care of you and your children. children. And then it ends in verse 21, and he spoke kindly to them. The third takeaway that we get from the story of Joseph is this, is that real power, real power comes under, not over. Real power comes under to serve. Because Joseph could have simply, you know, ordered them, commanded them, do a number of things. But he says to them, I'm going to take care of you and your children. And he he exhibits real power. That's what real power is. It always comes under. It seeks to serve. It's humble. It's full of humility. It's others-focused. He says, I'm going to take care of you and your children. And that's power under. In the world that we live in, um, in politics, in business, we see a different kind of power. The world uh, demonstrates a different kind of power, and it's a power over every time, a power over. 
But Jesus Christ, and we're going to talk more about this next week as we wrap up and do a review of Genesis and then look at the triumphal entry of Jesus on Palm Sunday. But, but Jesus demonstrates what real power is. It's power under. He came in on a uh, donkey, and that was a symbol of peace back in that time. He doesn't come with a white horse as a king. He could have. Um, he didn't come with a sword. He came with a cross. That's real power. Serving and coming under and serving those around you. So for you, how can you exhibit that kind of power? You might be in a position in a company. You might be in a position perhaps, uh, perhaps in, in a, a sports uh, organization. How can you demonstrate power by serving those around you? And I think one of the best visuals in the last handful of years um, was uh, Pope Benedict. That when he be- became Pope and when Easter came up during Holy Week, the tradition for the popes, and by the way, the Pope is probably the most powerful and influential leader in the Christian world. Um, uh, the Pope, in the tr- tradition during Holy Week, on Monday, Thursday, was to wash the feet of bishops and cardinals, uh, the really, really religious people. And that had been a tradition for decades. And he, when he became Pope, he did something radical. It actually ca- caused some, some turmoil within the Vatican. He said, I'm not doing that. For the washing of the feet, I'm going to wash the feet of teenagers who are imprisoned. And here's a picture of that. And I remember seeing that on TV and watching that and the picture, and it absolutely moved me. That's what real power is. It's a power to serve. And we see that in the life of Joseph. Is that real power takes a basin of water and a towel and serves. May you and I And may Maple Grove Covenant Church seek to do the same. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this morning. And God, we adore you as we read the words of Joseph and as we look at uh, his understanding of how this all came together. The um, reconciliation with his brothers, the saving of millions of people during a famine. And instead of looking in the mirror, he looks out the window and he says, God did this. So for all the good things, all the um, events in our lives, God, we look out the window and we say, it's God. We adore you, we worship you, and we bow down before you. In your name we pray. Everybody said, amen.